Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Here we are in the end of this series on truth. So let's ask God for help, shall we, before we look into this issue of how we hold truth. God, uh, we look to you to uh, define truth for us. We understand if we're going to understand things about you, about eternity in a spiritual world, it has to be revealed to us. And intersecting with Jesus, now we want to know how we hold these truths. How do we hold them out? And God, would you give us insight onto this so that we would climb up into your heart and reflect you to this world? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as Dan said, last week we covered the core and essential truths of Christianity that Christians uh, are to guard. And so these will be the core essentials of the faith. So now we want to talk about how we guard these truths. So we have to have, know the truths, and now we know, need to know how to guard them, how to hold them, and how to hold them out. Now to do this, here are my goals this morning. To do this, to explain the how question, I want to use a word for these doctrinal essentials, a word that's probably going to upset you, or it's going to rankle you, it's not going to sit well with you. And then I'm going to tell you why that word doesn't sit well with you. And then I want to, if I can, reclaim the word. I want to be able to redeem it, uh, maybe so that we could use it again the way it's meant to be used. Are you ready? Okay, so those are my goals. So the core creeds of the church are outlined for us in several different places in the Bible and in the early uh, church uh, itself, in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and so forth. Uh, they are outlined most uh, beautifully and in the most uh, primitive way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when the Apostle Paul says, these core essentials I delivered to you as of first importance. We went over them last week. Here they are in phrases. Christ came. Christ died for sin according to Scripture. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ was seen. And Christ will come again. There you go. So that is the fundamentals. Now here comes the icky word. To accept these core creeds, you are a fundamentalist. So does that sit well with you? Do you, do you like it? Do you embrace the word fundamentalist? I, I, I told you, it would kind of feel a little weird. It wouldn't sit well with you. Now to help you out with that, let me just go back to the dictionary. Let's define what the word fundamental means. Here's what it means. It means a central or primary rule or principle on which something is based. So, you know, you play basketball, the coach goes through the fundamentals, right? Which is passing, shooting, dribbling. Those are the fundamentals of basketball. So when you get to Christianity, the existence of God, the divinity of Christ, his substitutionary death for sin, his resurrection, and his ultimate return, these are all the fundamentals of Christianity. The thing we said last week, Paul delivers as of first importance. Now, Let's just go with this. If you agree to the fundamentals, you are by definition a fundamentalist, right? And at AC3, we believe the creeds of the church. We are a historic, biblical, creedal community of Christians here at AC3. So we are technically then fundamentalist. The only difference with us is we put the fun back in fundamental. So, and I'm still waiting for someone of you to, to, you know, make that a bumper sticker. AC3, we put the fun back in fundamental. I don't know if it's going to happen in part because of this word. It's got such a negative cultural connotation. It feels dirty. Say it again slowly. It'll make you cringe. Fundamentalist. It reminds me of that scene in Princess Bride. Maybe you remember this when Miracle Max, he, he can't stand to hear the name of his nemesis, Prince Humperdinck. So his wife tortures him by saying the word over and over again. Humperdinck, Humperdinck, Humperdinck. 
You told me you'd never say that word. Fundamentalist. I'm not listening. Right? That word just has that same connotation. Okay, so that's the word. Now let me tell you why it falls on you so poorly. Why the word is akin to Humperdinck. Why the word is akin to Voldemort. Right? He who must not be named. It's because the word fundamentalist got hijacked. The word got hijacked and then the word got redefined. And how it got hijacked was mainly by media and mainly by media coverage of the religion of Islam in the last 20, 25 years or so. See, you know how this goes down. When there is a Muslim terrorist attack somewhere in the world, we are told instantly this was the work of fundamentalists. This is the work of fundamentalists. The Taliban are Muslim fundamentalists. ISIS are Muslim fundamentalists. These are fundamentalist sects. So we've naturally begun to associate the word fundamentalist with violence. If you're a fundamentalist, you're radical. If you're a fundamentalist, you're fringe. If you're a fundamentalist, you're extreme. If you're a fundamentalist, you're prone to violence and intolerance and hate and the whole nine yards. Now, here's an interesting irony as I was thinking about it this week. Maybe you'll find this as surprisingly ironic as I did. At the same time as we hear about Muslim fundamentalists committing acts of terror, we also hear repeatedly that Islam is a religion of peace. In other words, that peace is core to its nature. To say it another way, that true Islam, essential Islam, mere Islam, Islam as it is held by most Muslims at most times and most places, we are told is not like the Taliban, is not like ISIS. Now, maybe you begin to see the contradiction there, right? The media instructs us to believe that a Muslim fundamentalist is someone who departs from the core essentials of the faith, right? And yet the central or primary core of Islam, its fundamental character, is peaceful. I mean, that's an interesting irony. How can you be an extremist because you're a fundamentalist of a religion that is fundamentally peaceful? That's a total irony. We've mangled the word. I mean, the word is completely mangled. So now fundamentalist no longer applies to what you believe. It now applies to how you believe it. And I want to talk about that as it relates to Christianity, but let's just stick with Islam for just a moment. Do the fundamentals of Islam, which is to say its core or central principles or rules, that's what the word fundamental means, do the fundamentals of Islam really tend towards peace and nonviolence and non-coercion, in other words, being nice as the religion spreads? To answer that question, we need to know something about the core of that faith, don't we? We need to know what is core, what is mere Islam. We need to know what it is. We can't just invent something. We can't just make Islam what we want it to be. We have to know how Muhammad framed it because he's the original dude, right? He's the prophet who frames the religion for us. He's the one who tells us how Islam was originally held. And then we could look and say, how was Islam held and... and um, uh, lived for, throughout most of history in most times and most places. What agrees with its earliest creeds? Same question we asked of Christianity last week when we went back to these primal creeds in the New Testament. So rather than give you my answer to what is fundamental Islam, let me give you my answer, I could, but let's consult someone who spent 22 years as a devout Muslim, a guy named Nabil Qureshi. And we've been unpacking his story this month, haven't we? If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've used him as an illustration all weeks, and we're going to, uh, again, lean heavily on his story to illustrate what we're talking about today. 
Uh, Nabil was born into a devout Muslim family. He was born in 1983. And Nabil was, this wasn't a nominal Muslim family. I mean, this is a devout Muslim family. And he devoted large parts of his uh, mental space. He's an incredibly brilliant guy to memorizing the Quran, the Hadith. He wanted to imitate Muhammad as the highest moral example that the world had ever seen. Well, he eventually converted to Christianity. And here's what he says about whether violent Islam is fundamental Islam. He said, initially when I encountered the violence in Islam, I said, well, this can't be the true Islam. And I for years would push back, arguing, no, this hadith is unreliable. And so what he's saying is, and he looked at hadiths that seemed to be violent, he would say, no, 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 that's not actually the one, uh, that's not actually the way the Muslim, uh, that Muhammad framed it or that early Islam lived it. But then he researched and he found that, in fact, more and more of these early traditions were, were connecting Muhammad to violent acts, warfare, and um, uh, the uh, violent insertion of Islam to um, the polytheists in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. These were from the earliest of Muslim traditions. So Nabil suddenly realized, quote, if I dismiss all of these violent traditions, then I'm basically dismissing the foundations of Islam. This is where I get my picture of Muhammad from. He goes on. So just looking at the sources, how do I reconstruct what Muhammad's life was like? Well, there are many peaceful passages, like Surah chapter uh, 2, uh, Surah 2, uh, verse 256, where it says, there is no compulsion in religion. Fairly peaceful. Others, he says, are abused. And by abused, he means taken out of context. And when you start understanding the context, you realize that this is not the ultimate message of Jesus. See, that's the question we're trying to ask and answer, right? What is the message? What is the ultimate message of Islam? What is its fundamental message? I'll let Nabil explain. Turn your attention to the side screens for a second, and he talks about it. You start getting the context, and what you find is in the first 13 years of Muhammad's uh, prophetic career, um, he lives a peaceful life. He has about 100 followers by the end of that time, not that Mm -hmm. many. Um, Certainly doesn't have a fighting force. Most of these people are of humble means, Um, and he he doesn't fight during that time. But then he's given rule over a city. An entire city gives him uh, the the right to be arbiter. Mm. From that moment until his death, approximately 9 to 10 years, he personally participates in or deputizes 86 battles. Right. So that's an average of nine plus battles a year. And they culminate in intensity until the moment he dies. Chapter 9 of the Quran is the last major chapter of the Quran to have been composed. And it is the most expansively violent. This is the one Mm. that starts off by saying this is a disavowal of all the treaties we have with polytheists. Chapter 9, verse 5, slay the infidels wherever you find them. Lay siege to them, take them captive. Chapter 9, verse 29, fight the Jews and Christians until they pay you the poll tax and they feel subdued. Why? Chapter 9, verse 33, Islam has been made to prevail over every religion. So, I mean, chapter 9 is the most violent. It's the culmination of the Islamic message. It's It's the marching orders that Muhammad leaves Muslims with, which is why when he dies... Muslims conquer one-third of the known world within 150 years. Right. Well, this is a twist, isn't it? This is a twist. We're getting now to the question, what is fundamental Islam? So when you read it through Nabil's eyes, what it seems like is that maybe the media, the way it's painted, fundamentalism is right, but 50% right. 
In other words, maybe it's true that Muslim fundamentalists, fundamentalists are extremists, but maybe those extremists actually express fundamental Islam. Now, I'm sure that there's probably some pushback that maybe some in this room will feel about this, and, and you would cite with good evidence uh, your sweet Muslim neighbor. You might even cite Nabil, for goodness sake. For 22 years, he's an incredibly devoted Muslim man, and he's a, a really smart guy. He's a first-year med student. He eventually becomes a medical doctor. He's unbelievably smart and nice and peaceful, for that matter. You might also cite his wonderful parents, who to this day are devoted followers of Islam, and they have no interest in advancing Islam by force. They're good Americans. In fact, you know, Nabil's father is a 24-year veteran of the U.S. military, you know, so swearing allegiance to the flag and the whole thing, everything that goes with it. So I hope that no one in this room, no follower of Jesus, would ever kind of assume there are no Muslims who reject violence, who denounce terror, who live peacefully with their neighbor. There are millions millions of them in the world. Thank God. I'm simply asking if these peace-loving Muslims are fundamental in the way they practice their religion, in that they express the true intent and core teachings and original example of the prophet Muhammad. If the answer is no, as Nabil claims, if the answer to that question is no, then those peace-loving, moderate so-called Muslims are about as Muslim as your Mormon or Jehovah Witness is Christian. What it means is basically they have the name, they read the religion's holy book, they honor the founder by name, but they do not hold to the faith as it was originally given or agree with its original doctrines and creeds and examples. In other words, they are not fundamentalists. And again, that's no criticism that's praise. That's praise. We have only praise and friendship for those who would abandon any core or fundamental principle of coercion or violence in their religion. And we would offer them only our friendship and our love. We would simply know that they are practicing a form of Islam that is not fundamental. Now, let's flip the script, okay, to Christianity. So maybe we'd flip the script and we'd say the exact same thing about Christianity. Maybe all modern Christians are also not fundamentalists in the way we're describing it. Maybe all modern Christians have evolved in the same way that these moderate Muslims have evolved, and they've rejected the coercive, violent ways of our founder, and that we've rejected all the earliest warfaring of the disciples of our founder and the narrow, mean-spirited creeds. Maybe that's true of Christianity. Well, you know I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. In fact, it's the opposite. When it comes to being a fundamentalist, it's what we hope you're not if you're a Muslim, but it's what we hope you are if you're a Christian. Why? Because one of our fundamentals is that we hold out our fundamentals with humility and grace and respect. And now I'm going to prove it to you. Let's go to the examples of the earliest creeds the fundamentals of the Christian faith. See, Christians have doctrine, right? And doctrine is simply the things that we believe are true. And among our doctrine are doctrines about how we hold our doctrines. You follow? So how we hold our fundamentals is one of our fundamentals. And to go again back to the original marching orders for Christians, here's 
Jesus, lead disciple Peter, when he writes a letter late in his life, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect. So how does Christianity spread? What's the earliest example, marching orders, for how it moves out into the world? Well, uh, it spreads when Christians are asked about their unique hope in Jesus. That will happen as Christians live in the world. They will be asked about their unique values, their unique lifestyle, their unique beliefs. And when they are asked, Peter says, they need to be prepared. Prepared with what? With reasons. So not just with a, well, it, it feels good. I feel it in my feeler. No, it's like there needs to be reasons. There needs to be reasons for the hope that you have. And this is a stirring call to use reason and faith together. But notice, this is a doctrine about how we are to spread our doctrine. And how are we supposed to do it? With two adjectives that define the how of the enterprise, not the what of the enterprise. We talked about that last week. Now this defines the how of the enterprise. Two words. Gentleness and Respect. Gentleness and respect. Now, what do you think that means? Respecting a person who believes something that's different than you means that you give them the latitude to believe that and to be non-coercive, even if you're convinced that they are in error. That's what respect means. It means engaging with their ideas. Respecting them actually means honoring their their problems with Christian truth claims. It's like, you got a problem with the divinity of Jesus? You've got a problem with the reliability of the Bible? You've got a problem with Christian teaching about X, Y, or Z? Let's discuss that. Let's unpack that. Those are legitimate questions, my friend. It's respect. And gentleness means you leave behind all manner of coercion and manipulation and external control. Of course, right? I mean, that's just Im- not, not even just implied in the word gentleness. It's a command. That inside of gentleness, this is how we are to be non-coercive when we disagree and when we are trying to convince the world that our truth claims are really true. I mean, this is, just, this is not just a one-off, friends. Let's just keep going. They fall like hammer blows. The how question is answered repeatedly. Paul will say this to churches in the Colossae region. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, live wisely among those who are not believers. And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Recognizing that different people are going to need different questions answered. You know, the right response for everyone. Now, that word attractive is actually not found in the Greek. It's a, it's a, a choice that the translators made to render the original Greek phrase, which is seasoned with salt. So the original Greek phrase is, let your conversations be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. Now, what does salt do? Salt makes things taste good. And in the ancient world of really crappy cuisine, salt mattered, right? You know that salt was like currency, right? They would parse it out like gold, and they'd use it on scales, and they'd use it as a means of exchange. Salt was that important to make things taste good, So when he's calling you to make conversation with salt, he's calling you to make conversations that are attractive, conversations that are full of good seasoning, that are 
um, that taste good. So this is how we hold out our truth to our investigating friends and neighbors. And in part this and many other places in the Bible, we get tremendous justification in our particular approach to ministry to use the arts. Why are we using the arts here every weekend? Because we want to make the good news seem like what it is. Good news. It's one of our fundamentals that we should make conversations about grace attractive. That's a fundamental. So when you walk in and you see the rock band and the cool music and a little bit of you know, stage lights and the drama, and you say, well, one thing this church is is not fundamentalist. I beg to differ. If one of our fundamentals is to make conversations about faith attractive, that makes us fundamentalists. The use of the arts. I'm not saying every church needs to do it. I'm just saying that this is our marching orders, to make conversations about faith attractive using gentleness and respect. Here's another passage. First, Tim, or First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul will say to that young church, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you. Why? Verse 12. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live. And you will not need to depend on others. So this is Paul's clear injunction for us to reject dependency, right? That should be a goal for every Christian. I'm not wanting to be dependent on you. You should not want to be dependent on me. Self-reliance should be a goal for every hardworking Christian. But notice why. Notice who he's concerned with. Not so much you, actually, follower of Jesus. He's concerned with your non-believing neighbor. He's concerned with the impact that it's going to have to have self-reliant, hard-working, non-busybody, non-intrusive Christians, that's good, that, the impact they're going to have on their non-believing neighbors. And he's imagining how wonderfully positive the influence is going to be. So again, that means one of our fundamentals is that we are not busybodies, we are not lazy, we are not loudmouth, and we are not obnoxious with outsiders. That, that's just marching orders, friends. That's straight from the original creedal formulation aka the fundamentals of our faith are we courageous truth tellers i hope so are we narrow bigoted or mean justifying it because we're believers and we have the truth we better not be or else you're no longer a fundamentalist it reminded me of a cartoon i got it's a couple years ago now but it's relevant here uh, the the line in the cartoon was uh you're a believer, yes, but you skip the not being a jerk about it part. <clears throat> I think we miss this, don't we? Okay. Well, I believe the right truths. So we talked about last week. I believed all the right things. Yeah, but you skip this part, which was one of the truths. Is that when you explain the hope that you have, you do so with gentleness and respect. I could go on and on. When Paul is telling Timothy he needs to teach his church the fundamentals, right? Because he's a pastor. So Timothy's a pastor. How does Paul, the mentor, teach his young apprentice how to teach his church the fundamentals? He gives him instruction. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to just the Christians. Oh, no way. It doesn't say that. It says, to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Questions! This is just so clear about the manner, the mode of speaking truth, teaching truth, disseminating truth, isn't it? 
You know how when you're um, surfing the web, you click on a web page? Before you get into the web page, there's a pop-up. And like the pop-up is either like a permission form or a warning or something like that. Ever done that, right? You clicked on the web page. You can't get in until you've looked at this thing. I would like it if whenever I clicked on any social media page, a pop-up would immediately come up on my screen and say, before proceeding, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. This is the word of God. That would be awesome. Just sort of a little reminder before I enter into the jungle of social media, just a little reminder. So you give answers. Give answers. And you have clear colors about where you stand on certain things. Fly your colors freely and boldly. But don't start, do not sustain fights. Is any of this unclear? Second, if someone opposes you, do what? Start a gossip campaign against him? Uh, tax him more heavily? Uh, take out a hit on his life? Uh, picket his place of business with a sign that says, anyone who disagrees with Rick is a bigot and a heretic? I mean, what? What are you supposed to do? If someone opposes you, gently instruct. The one who opposes the man of God, he should gently instruct. Well, you say, well, what if they're belligerent in their uh, denial or refusal or uh, rejection of the truth? Well, listen, later Paul will say to another young pastor, a guy named Titus, in a different letter, he will say, look, if someone continues to be divisive, inside a faith community, then you have the right to impose or kill him. No, he doesn't say that. Then he says, no, if someone is divisive in a, in a faith community, then you warn them repeatedly as an act of grace, and then you withdraw. Warn, then withdraw. And you say, oh, the shunning thing, right? Listen, friend, that's unbelievably respectful. You understand that, right? It's incredibly respectful of a, of a person made in the image of God, and it respects their right to disagree. It also respects your right to not have to associate with that. It's a beautiful statement of freedom on all counts. You don't have to believe the core fundamentals of Christianity. That's what we're teaching over here. We're teaching it gently and winsomely with grace and salt. And if you don't want to get on board the plan, you want to be divisive with it, you want to create dissension and division, it's fine. We don't have to associate with you. You believe what you want to believe. And um, this gets us to Jesus. So here the master chimes in on the same topic. And he will say something that maybe at first blush sounds a little kind of gruff. But really it points again to how Jesus' followers are to be non-coercive when holding out our message in the world. When Jesus sends his disciples out to the villages in uh, Nazareth, or in the, um, in the Palestine region, to preach the kingdom of God, he gives them this instruction. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words... Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town or house. So you hear the word shaking the dust off your feet, and that sounds a little contemptuous, doesn't it? Huh. Kind of huffy a little bit. But listen, what, do you, what, what, is, what, is, what are the disciples trying to say when they metaphorically, symbolically wipe the dust off their feet? What they're trying to say is, I wash my hands of this situation. That's what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, my responsibility here is done. You believe what you want to believe. Jesus couldn't have said this any more clearly. My followers are to disseminate the truth and be welcomed when they're welcomed. And when they're not welcomed, you believe what you want 
to believe. And your responsibility is done. You know what's beautiful about this? Is it causes the disciple to no longer feel like they're responsible for the outcomes of truth dissemination. I'm getting truth out there and someone is resisting. Someone's being divisive. Someone's pushing back. Someone's not welcoming me or what I have to say. And then what will some Christians do? Power up, control, manipulate, coerce. And Jesus is saying, here's what you do. None of that stuff. Wipe the dust off your feet. Move on. Friends, it's beautifully respectful of the free moral agent who God has made in his image with freedom to choose. And Jesus is saying, you believe what you want to believe. And my follower in this case washes his hands. He is no longer responsible for the outcome. Now, how different is that from the early Muslim tradition that says when Muhammad was talking about disseminating Islam, he said, and I'm quoting Hadith here, I have been ordered to fight people until they testify that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and they establish prayer and pay the zakat, which is charity. And only if they do that, their blood and their wealth are protected from me. That explains the first 200 years of Islam. And there's nothing like that in the first 200 years of Christianity. Look, here's the bottom line, friends. Fundamentalist is a swear word in our culture. I get it. And maybe we haven't succeeded in redeeming the word here today. I doubt it because there's so much cultural force against it. But in Christianity, we should just know this amongst ourselves here in this little circle. Okay? We know that fundamentalist is what you want to be. Because to be a fundamentalist is to be an originalist. To be a fundamentalist means you want to go back to the core rule or principle of a thing. And in this case, it is the faith that Jesus bequeathed to the world. Now, I get it. Fundamentalist, as the media defines it, is a mean-spirited, grumpy, bigoted, intolerant, narrow-minded, coercive human being in complete contrast to Christian fundamentals. So then, ironically, the media will, you know, throw the Westboro Baptists out on your television screen every other month. There's 16 of them, by the way. So there's 16 people who go to this one church. There's 500,000 churches in America, but everybody knows about Westboro Baptists. And what are they? They're fundamentalists. They're fundamentalists. That's what they are. But let me ask you a question based on everything I've shown you from Scripture after Scripture and the example and command of the Lord Jesus and His early apostles. If Scripture defines our fundamentals, are they fundamentalists? No, they're not. They're some kind of harsh, hateful, modern, politicized version of Christianity that has rejected our fundamentals and therefore has abandoned the faith. So, I am a fundamentalist. I'm proud of it. I'm proud to belong to a group like here where we put the fun back in fundamentals. And along with believing the fundamentals, such as that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then in believing anyone, you, your friends, your neighbors, anyone who is near or far off, anyone can have life in his name. That's one of my fundamentals. And aside from believing that as my fundamentals, I also believe fundamentally in love. I believe in love fundamentally, friend, because Jesus revealed that God is love. 
so that his apostle John would write that in one of his letters. God is love. Different theistic traditions would maybe understand that God has love, God can be loving, and only in Christianity do we hear that phrase, God is love. So fundamental to his character is love that the Apostle John would say, God is love. So if God is love, then anyone who speaks his message of love needs to speak it in a way and a manner of love. And this is something Nabil Qureshi wanted the world to know. What you may not know about Nabil Qureshi, we've been throwing out his story all month long, but you may not know that he's dead. Nabil Qureshi died four weeks ago, September 16, 2017. He died after a one-year battle with stage four stomach cancer. And as he lay on a hospital bed, just 24 hours before he went to be with his Lord, a master for whom he had sacrificed friends and family members and so much, he recorded these words that he wanted you to hear. Let's watch. Hi, everyone. This is Nabil. I know I just updated a video yesterday, but I've been thinking about some things I wanted to discuss briefly um, that I've never really had an opportunity to discuss. And that is where my heart has been during my ministry. There's been a lot of discussion about details about the truth of Islam and Christianity and um, looking into the Quran and the Hadith and the Bible and Jesus and Muhammad etc. You know I think it's very important that we discuss matters of truth but at the end of the day that is supposed to be undergirded by love and by peace when we talk to people about our beliefs, we should do it through a lens of love. And the whole point should be to bring people together, um, to bring people together to the truth and not to hurt one another, but to help one another. And I've noticed at times that people will take the information that I share and use it to undercut one another. Uh, that has not been my intent. My whole point in, in teaching is for love to reign. And so, as you consider my ministry, I hope it leaves uh, a legacy of, of love, of peace, of truth, um, of caring for one another. That's my hope and my, my purpose behind this. And so if at any point I've said anything that seems to contravene that, I do apologize. And I hope that that's not the legacy that I leave behind. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, you know, our God is a God of love. And that should be what keeps us driven. That should be foremost in our mind. Um, so whether you're talking to a Hindu, a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, whoever you're talking to, uh, may it be out of love. Thanks very much, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Bye-bye.
44 hours later, he is dead. You know, we around here talk about Jesus' last words being our first concern. And there's Nabil, and you just heard his last words. And so what it means to me is that love and truth are not enemies. Can we accept that? Can we accept that I could love you even if we disagree? Even if we are engaged in maybe very strident disagreement about the nature of God and salvation? I think that's possible. I think we can be friends even if we think uh, differently. Even if we're engaged in a mutual seeking process to know what God is like. In fact, I think not only can I love you if we disagree, I think I could love you if you're my enemy. I think I could love you if you slapped me across the cheek because I could turn to you the other also. And I could love you if you were my enemy because I could pray for you. I could love you if you despitefully abused me. And I could walk a mile in your shoes and if you asked me for my coat, I could give you my cloak as well. I could love you if we were enemies. And so, friend, you can love and hold out truth in a loving way. Some of you in this room, I just hope that you do this, that you are a person who maybe because you've been beat over the head with the book of truth, like we saw in the drama, that you just backed away from the whole truth thing, man. It's just like, let's just try to love people and be nice. Listen, I challenge you to bring truth to your love because love without truth very often is uh, indulgent and damaging. And then there's those of you in this room who you have been set on the absolute truth claims of the Christian faith and you have held to them tenaciously and if needs be ruggedly and in your lexicon that means roughly if you need to be in friend. That's not our fundamental. It's not being a fundamentalist. You're not being a good fundamentalist. You have to hold it with gentleness and respect. So would you bring love to where your truth is? And will you bring truth to where your love is? And if you would, then you and I would follow in the example and good command of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the way and the truth and the life. Let me pray for you now. God, I ask that your church hear this particular expression of your global, universal, eternal church, this expression, would live more heartily in love and truth now than we did before we came in this morning. That we would take the example and the command of our fundamentals as you baked it into your word and the example of our brother, Nabil, and we would hold out the word of life and we would hold it out attractively with grace seasoned with salt so that everyone would see to whom we belong. We belong to the one who said he was the way and the truth and the life. We pray in his powerful name. Amen.